Our scripture lesson this morning continues in the book of Acts as we have for the last few weeks. We're going back just a little bit. We were in Acts 10 last week. Today we backtrack a little bit to Acts chapter 6. We find the disciples still in Jerusalem. They haven't begun their missionary journeys yet. They're about seven years into the work of being the church. And that's where we pick up today in Acts chapter 6 verse 1. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists, complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the 12 called together the whole community of the disciples. And they said, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. And when they said, and what they had said, pleased the whole community. And they chose Philip and Stephen, Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. They chose Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And they had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken now. And whether we come with willing ears or with stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Here's one thing that we might have in common. It's that I like being able to solve my own problems. When I say it that way, it sounds very noble and self-sufficient of me. But what it really means is that I like to be in control. Woods and I were talking just the other day, and we both realized that we feel the same way now on Sunday mornings, which is to say we're terrified the whole time. You'd think that it would be a lot less nerve-wracking the way we're doing things these days. You'd think it'd be a lot more nerve wracking just to stand in front of all of you in person. But I've done that plenty of times. And most importantly, I know that if everything goes off the rails during a live Sunday morning service, I know what to do about it. I'll make a joke, I'll laugh it off and just stop everything for a moment while we reset. But nowadays, if there's something wrong on a Sunday morning, it is probably happening on a server somewhere in like Seattle, or maybe there's a gremlin in the wiring. And I have a lot less power over those kinds of problems. I'm sure you sympathize. I expect that the last few weeks have had all of us giving up our control over something that used to be a source of great comfort to us. Maybe it's your routine that you had control over and that has now been completely blown up. Maybe you've had to start fiddling with some sorts of technologies that you used to be able to ignore. Maybe you're a teacher who's had to become a learner real fast. I expect that every one of us has had to give something up in the last few weeks, some status, some role, some thing that we used to use to take control over our daily lives. And as we've given these things up for all that we have given up, I've also heard from so many people about what they have been given in the last few weeks. 
Many of us have given, been given more time with our families, more time to get our neighbors. I hear from so many who see your neighbors out in the front yard more than you ever did before. I've heard from a lot of people who are connecting with far-flung friends these days more than they ever did before because it doesn't feel as weird to just hang out on a video call as it used to. My mom's side of the family, we had our first ever virtual family reunion just a few weeks ago. And I've gotten to do all kinds of wonderful things, new things like praying with so many of you on Facebook each night during Holy Week. And if this week, today, right now, is like the last several weeks, right now I am preaching to more people today than I was two months ago. This has been one of the most consistent and consistently difficult lessons for me to learn in my life. I can't receive what God is going to give me while clinging to what God has already given. Or to put it another way, before hands can be filled, they have to be empty. If I want to breathe deeply of the Holy Spirit, I have to be willing to exhale as much as I inhale. This isn't the way that we want our discipleship to go. If we had our way, life would just be about building, building, building. It'd be about piling one thing on top of another until we could touch heaven itself. We want the next thing that God has for us without ever letting go of everything that went before. Way back when we planned this series on the Holy Spirit, none of us here at the church quite expected that we'd be giving up quite as much as we have in this present moment. But I hope there is some comfort today in discovering that the Holy Spirit has almost always had to pry the church's hands open. There's an old prayer that begins, God, you are more ready to hear than we are to pray and more ready to give than we are to receive or even to ask. Throughout the last few weeks and through the next few weeks to come, we are talking together through the book of Acts and we are praying together and paying attention together, paying particular attention to the work of the Holy Spirit because we want to be ready. We want to have our hands open for whatever the Holy Spirit might give us. We want to be a spirit-filled church because God's desire is to fill the world through the church. That's the mission that Jesus gave us at the beginning of Acts that we looked at a couple weeks ago when Jesus said, wait to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then go and fill the world. Jesus commissioned the church, appointed us to go and fill Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth with good news. And two weeks ago, we took time to pray and to answer what would that commandment look like for us? What is our Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? And last week, we prayed that God would fill our hearts with visions like the one that God gave to Peter as he prayed in Joppa. You remember there on a rooftop, Peter saw this great sheet come out of heaven that was filled with unclean animals. And Peter heard Jesus calling him and telling him to touch the unclean animals. And that's how Peter learned that God was sending him to the Gentiles. The word of God was being set loose to fill in even the supposedly unseen and unclean corners of Judea. Today, we're backtracking just a little bit from what we read last week, and we're filling in a few of the gaps in the story of how it is that the gospel came to fill the world. Today, we are back in Jerusalem, and as I mentioned earlier, it's been about seven years since Jesus first commanded the disciples to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. At this point, seven years in, the disciples have mostly made it to 
Well, just Jerusalem, really. That's all they've gone to. They've just made it to Jerusalem. And it's not like we can blame them. It must have been really hard for them to think about Judea and Samaria when they had so much going on in Jerusalem. When we find Peter and the other 11 apostles this morning, they've got their hands full. It's no wonder that they weren't thinking about preaching to Gentiles because it was more than they could handle just to juggle the internal competition among their fellow Jews. You see, in first century Jerusalem, there are a lot of different types and distinct groups within Judaism. Some of the distinctions were organized and they were official factions like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. It's not a perfect analogy, but you might think of these official groups the way you think of modern denominations, like Methodist and Catholic and non-denominational. By the way, just if you haven't been told, non-denominational is a denomination. Non-denominational means Baptist with a marketing degree. There were other less organized factions, though. Today, we might say that there are groups like traditional or evangelical or charismatic And these were distinctions that were less about organization and more about culture and language. The Hebraic Jews were those families that had never left the promised land, and they had worshiped the one true God faithfully in Judea, speaking Hebrew and Aramaic for a hundred, a thousand years or more. And alongside these Hebraic Jews in Jerusalem, there were also the Hellenistic Jews. And those were the families that had returned to Judea after spending some time, often hundreds of years, in exile in other nations. And these Hellenistic Jews, they mostly spoke Greek, which was the universal language of the day. And they read the Hebrew Bible from Greek translations. And as you can imagine, there were all kinds of class and cultural differences between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenist Jews. They even had their own synagogues there in Jerusalem. But for those first seven years after Easter, the church was made up of converts from from both groups, Hebraic and Hellenistic Jews coming together and the worship of Jesus. And they were all worshiping together and they were sharing their possessions together and they were caring for one another. And you probably aren't surprised that all of this brought about a few problems. And it was hard to control And if you have ever known that impulse that makes you say, I want to speak to the manager, then you can imagine why the people in the church wanted the apostles to solve all their problems. They wanted to go to the top. They wanted to talk to the people who had walked and talked with Jesus. And now seven years in, the apostles have their hands full, juggling to make sure that everyone is treated fairly. And it's in this situation where the apostles say, just like we heard in the scripture earlier, we need seven people who are full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And then the apostles lay hands on these seven people. And the laying on of hands became a sign for the church of the spirit's presence and power. These seven are gonna devote themselves to serving in certain ministries. And the apostles are letting go of some old responsibilities. And the end result of what the disciples let go is that we are told the word of God spread and the number of disciples increased and a large number of priests came to follow Jesus. This this passage right here, it's only seven verses, but it becomes a turning point in the future of the church. 
We're going to say more about this next week when we look at chapter 8 and we see how everything that happens here changed what came afterwards. If you aren't paying attention, you might miss it. Because in this case, the Holy Spirit's work in this moment, it doesn't look like ecstatic visions of animals or tongues of fire or a blinding light from heaven. Here, the Holy Spirit's work is that a handful of people are willing to let go. It's the apostles saying, we need to let go of our control over this process. And it's the rest of the church saying to the apostles, we need to let go of our control over you. The Holy Spirit is in the laying on of hands. It's in the growth of the church. And the Holy Spirit is in letting go of the good things in order to pursue the one best thing. And don't take for granted how hard this must have been. I was talking to a a wonderful older woman several years ago who said that she had had to leave her church when it started growing. For all her life, there had been about 50 people in that church. And then a new neighborhood came in, planted just on the other side of the church. And suddenly there were a couple hundred people in worship. And she told me, I just can't feel comfortable in a church where I don't know everyone and everyone doesn't know me. Imagine how much more you would feel that way if your preachers were Peter and James and John. Imagine what it would have been like to take your problems to Peter one day. And the next month, you have to make an appointment with some guy named Nicolaus, who wasn't even from Judea. He was from Antioch. Don't tell me that that felt as special as talking to Peter. And by the way, I don't think that the 12 probably felt very special in all of this either. You notice what happened when they quit doing some of those things they had been doing? The church grew. In the next several verses, we're going to find out that Stephen, one of those that they appointed, he was as good a preacher as any of the 12. And we read today that once he and Nicolaus and the others started preaching on the street corners and visiting the needy, the church grew and even temple priests began to follow Jesus. That must have hurt the ego of the 12 just a little bit that it got better when they stepped away and that they didn't have control over any of it. I think it must've hurt their egos a little bit not to look like nice guys. I mean, much respect to Peter and to everyone else. I'm sure that they were good Christians, but it's not a great look when they say, what, do you want us to wait on tables? I think they probably could have found a better way to say that. But sometimes our ego is all wrapped up in making it look like we have no ego. Maybe your identity is that you're the one who can always make time, who always says, oh, no, no, I can do this and that. Your greatest need is to be needed in a very particular way. Maybe the single hardest thing to let go of for you is the desire to solve all the problems, to play the hero or the martyr. I think we all know how hard it can be How hard it was even for the apostles to say, this is good, but it's not mine anymore. And there's one other thing here. It's added there almost as like an aside, but it may be the single most remarkable thing in the entire thing that we read, the entire passage. This might be the most Holy Spirit filled part. It's there in verse five, where the apostles bring their idea about having seven new ministers serving in this role. And the book of Acts tells us this word pleased the whole group. If that is not the Holy Spirit, I don't know what is. Everybody agreed? You kidding me? 
What church was that? With everything that everybody had to give up, their roles and their identity and their egos and their closeness and their familiarity with one way of doing things. With all of that on the line, the whole group decided to let go of the first stage of the life of the church and to see what the Holy Spirit might have in store next. And this is really the turning point. As I mentioned, we're going to talk more about the implications of this moment next week, but suffice to say, things got a lot worse before they got better. But they did get better. And most importantly, they got moving. It's right there in that last verse. The word spread. When the church opened its hands to let go of what they knew, what they thought they could control, what they knew how to manage, they suddenly discovered that their hands were open to receive new gifts from God. And they were open to give new gifts because they weren't clinging to the old ones so tightly. That brings me to what is, for me, the scariest part of this entire series that we are preaching. And the scariest part of being a Spirit-filled church over the course of the series, we're going to preach six sermons on new things that, might, that God might give us. But today I'm preaching the one sermon we'll have about what God might be asking us to let go. And I want you to know I'm asking this without any agenda. I don't have a particular answer that I'm hoping for, a thing that you think we ought to let go of. All I'm hoping for is the Holy Spirit. I'm hoping for a church that doesn't just want to pile one good thing on top of another. I am hoping that we are also willing to pray and to name what God might need us to let go. The billionaire Warren Buffett has said several times about uh, his inheritance and his kids, that he wants to leave his kids enough of an inheritance that they can do anything, but not so much that they can do nothing. The book of Ephesians says that the Holy Spirit is our inheritance at Christ. And I believe that in the Spirit, Dauphin Way United Methodist Church can do anything. But if we try to do everything, we'll do nothing that we were made for. So I'm going to ask you again this week, if you would pray and if you would consider a question for me. What is God asking us to let go Just to be clear, this isn't a time for you to recommend that we get rid of the thing that you've always hated. You don't need the Holy Spirit to tell you that. No, the Holy Spirit is at work when we are set free to let good things go in order to choose the best things, the right things, the particular call and particular ministry that God has for our church. What might we need to let go? You don't have to worry about crafting the perfect answer to this question. All I want is an honest answer. Maybe there's something that jumps to your mind immediately right when I ask, what do we need to let go? Maybe you need to pray about it during our final song today. But when you have an answer, I hope that you will text it to 29988, just like we have the last couple weeks. It might be a single word that you need to send Just text whatever pops into your heart when you ask God, what are you asking us to let go? We've let go of a lot of things these last few weeks. And I, for one, can hardly wait for the day when we get some of them back. But even now, people are hearing good news through this church. 
in ways and in numbers that we could not have imagined two months ago. And even now, God may be revealing new blessings that we're just waiting for us to open our hands. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.